0: Let us now open God's holy word together, and we will turn to two passages. In the first place, we will go to Isaiah chapter 25, and in the second place, we'll read the whole chapter there. In the second place, we will go to the last book of Scripture, the book of Revelation, and read chapter 19 the verses 6 through 10. And after the reading of God's holy word, let us sing Psalm 145. And we read the word of God in Isaiah 25 as follows O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you, I will praise your name. For you have done wonderful things, plans formed of old, faithful and sure. For you have made the city a heap, the fortified city a ruin. The foreigner's place is a city no more, it will never be rebuilt. Therefore strong peoples will glorify you, cities of ruthless nations will fear you. For you have been a stronghold to the poor, a stronghold to the needy in his distress. A shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat. For the breath of the ruthless is like a storm against a wall, like heat in a dry place. You subdue the noise of the foreigners as heat by the shade of a cloud. So the song of the ruthless is put down. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, a rich of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. And he will swallow up this mountain, the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. For the hand of the Lord will rest on this mountain. And Moab shall be trampled down in this place as straw is trampled down in the dung hill. And he will spread out his hands in the midst of it, as a swimmer spreads his hands out to swim. But the Lord will lay low his pompous pride together with the skill of his hands, and the high fortifications of his walls he will bring down, lay low and cast to the ground to the dust. We turn now to Revelation chapter 19. beginning at verse 6. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of many peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Thus far the scripture reading. The the text for the sermon this morning is taken from the Gospel of John, chapter 2, the verses 1 through 11. And we read there, On the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone jars, stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After the sermon, let us sing together from Hymn 79, all five stanzas. Beloved brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ. Whenever we read something, then a basic question always is, well, why was this written? What, what is the author's point? Now, in our day and age, we are used to having authors give an indication rather quickly so that we will also know whether we want to bother <clears throat> to keep on reading whatever we have before us. And so it's not even uncommon that if you pick up a book All you have to do is just look at the back cover or you open the book and on the inside flap will be kind of an overview of what the book is about and it gives you an indication, yes, I do want to read this book or you put it back on the shelf. Now, there are, of course, books where things are not spelled out, but you think, well, let's see what's from the first few pages and the author can be so captivating that he draws you into the story and eventually whatever he's writing about becomes clear and you read the whole book with great interest. Or the author may kind of draw you along and I form you all, all kinds of things. And at the end, he tells you, now, this is indeed why I have written what I did. It is the last scenario that applies to the Gospel of John. Often understood that he wrote this as the last of the apostles surviving around 90 AD. Various issues had also begun to threaten the church, especially about challenging the divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ. But It's interesting, when you come to the Gospel of John, that he does not tell you his specific purpose until the end. It's actually right in chapter 20, verse 30 and 31. He writes, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Now, as we hear that, then we might think, if that's the case, we are to read about this so we might have, might believe in him, then we don't really have to be busy with the gospel of John, because after all, are we not together here this morning as a congregation of Christian believers? Of course, that's true, and may very well be the case that we are together here as those who confess the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ, as the one who has redeemed us from our sins, but it is important to be continually reminded and also to be confirmed in our faith. And further, we also think of of the younger generation, those who hear the gospel for the first time or come to that age where things finally begin to really penetrate. We think about those who are struggling with their faith or perhaps would have an occasion where a visitor comes and hears the gospel for the first time. So... In that respect, it is not a waste of time to spend time in the Gospel of John. Now, as we read that kind of purpose statement at the end, you will have noticed that John said that Jesus did many signs, more than what is recorded in this Gospel. This morning, we have before us the first of the signs that he did. It's interesting that John actually wrote down seven signs, seven, that's his word for miracles, seven signs. First sign is where he turned water into wine. Now we will look at it to see how this sign brings out that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, so that we also might be confirmed in our faith and might grow in our faith. And so I proclaim to you this morning... At a wedding in Cana, Jesus begins to reveal that he is the Christ, the Son of God. And we consider, first of all, the fitting occasion for this revelation. Secondly, the fitting sign for this revelation. And finally, the fitting response to this revelation. So at a wedding in Cana, Jesus begins to reveal that he is the Christ, the Son of God. Now, as we begin to consider our first point, the occasion, we might think, well, that's, that's rather obvious. We're speaking here of the occasion of a wedding. But we have to realize that this is only part of the picture. And this comes out if you start to think through the sequence of events leading up to that particular wedding occasion. Because that setting also is, is part of the occasion. And we notice that, how also our text is kind of drawn, as pulled with the, together with the previous passages, when it says there, on the third day. On the third day of what? Well, John actually has been very, keeping very careful track of Jesus' actions, you could say, actually, for the first week of when he began, you could say, kind of to reveal himself in his active ministry. For indeed, our text forms the seventh day, kind of the completion, you could say, of the first week of our Lord beginning to do his work. And you see that if you go back, first of all, for example, to chapter 1, where in the verses 19 through 28... You you can read about John the Baptist, who interacts with the Levites and the priests who had been sent by the Pharisees. And then he tells them that he is not the Messiah, but that there is someone coming who is greater. Now, it's interesting that John does not record for us when Jesus was actually baptized, although John the Baptist does allude to it. So, first of all, this interaction then with the leaders of the Jews. Then we read it the next day, notice, the next day, so our second day of the week, we could say, of that week of seven days, doesn't have to be following the actual pattern of our days, but simply that we have seven days altogether. The next day, which begins at verse 29, we notice that John the Baptist saw Jesus standing among the crowd. And He testified that this is the one he had been talking about the previous day to the Levites and the priests, the one also he says that he saw the Spirit of God descending upon. So this relates reminds us again of indeed when John had baptized our Lord Jesus Christ. That was day two. Well, then the third day, John again saw the Lord Jesus Christ, and he told some of his disciples. And it's interesting then that some of the disciples of John become the disciples of the lord jesus they begin to follow him when we think it through in terms of who those disciples were we can conclude that it were john and james and peter and andrew on the fourth day jesus called also philip and Nathanael to be his disciples and then a bit of a gap two days That leads us to the third day, the two days, which makes sense. There is not really an account of what was happening because John was baptizing around the Jordan, but then Jesus and his six disciples, they traveled towards Cana in Galilee. In those days, of course, they couldn't jump in the car or go on a bus. They would have to walk there, so that would account for two days of travel to go to this particular event. And then we come to day seven. Now, of course, when we have numbers like that in the Bible and our attention is drawn to it, we should always be careful because your mind can kind of go wild and speculate as to what is the importance of the number seven. But the reality is that John in his gospel works with that number seven repeatedly. As mentioned already, there are seven signs. He picked seven out of many other ones he could have picked. He also has seven I am sayings. We think also of the book of Revelation, written as well by John, filled with sevens, seven spirits around God's throne, the seven churches, seven bowls of wrath, seven trumpets, you know, all kind of sevens. Now, we know that this much we can say that the number of seven has a sense of fullness. But also, it's an echo of, of God's creation pattern, where he created for Six days rested on the seventh day, also bringing about the fullness of his his work there. Now, if we think through all that had been written about our Lord's ministry, beginning also with, first of all, that conversation John the Baptist had with the leaders, then you could say there were six days of preparation where the Lord Jesus began to gather his first disciples, those disciples so important because they were to be his eye and ear witnesses, But up to this point, beyond, of course, that miraculous calling you could say to us, that he said, well, Nathanael, I saw you sitting under a fig tree, and you are an Israelite without guile. Really, there had been no works of our Lord Jesus Christ recorded by John. There had been no teaching and preaching to indicate that, indeed, he was the Messiah. At this point, those disciples basically were relying upon the testimony of John the Baptist. Now, It all began to change on this particular day when Jesus turned that water into wine on the seventh day. So there comes a completion of that first week, and on that completion, we get that first revelation of who Jesus truly is. Now that we are aware of the less obvious, that might kind of easily be overlooked, that it took place on the seventh day, we turn our attention to the obvious fact that it took place at a wedding, Now, as we turn our attention there, then, of course, the first thing we might do is to highlight things that we don't know, and we mention them so that we are aware of them, but we're not going to get sidetracked on these issues and begin to speculate. But if we don't talk about it, you might say, why didn't you talk about that? What about this? What about that? Well, let's just eliminate a few things at this point. So, for example, it talks about a wedding, would have a bridegroom and a bride, We don't really know who these were. No indication whatsoever. So that's not considered important. We don't know what kind of relationship they were to Jesus. Was they one of them a cousin, family member? Don't know. And we also don't know how all of a sudden Jesus just gathering his first six disciples in that first week was able to take along those six disciples to the wedding. Were they also invited? How is that possible? Well, somehow not told to us, just that it happened. When you think about the way invitations go, you know, it sounds sounds a bit surprising nowadays when you get invited to a wedding, you get the invitation four months ahead of time or sometimes half a year. Save the date. Well, how did these six disciples suddenly fit into into the celebration? We don't know. And also when it comes to Mary, it's interesting. She's not even mentioned by name, but simply as Jesus' mother. We don't know what kind of role she played because she seemed to be more than just a guest, aware of the problem with the wine supply. Was he some kind of wedding planner? Was he related, helping out with the whole situation? We just don't know. What we do know is, Jesus went to a wedding. That's where our focus has to be. Now, as we see that, the Lord Jesus Christ going to a wedding, then all right, also right away, we see a sharp contrast to the ministry of John the Baptist you know, that John the Baptist. He was baptizing in the wilderness. He lived a very austere life, almost a bit like a hermit, you would say. Of course, that was also necessary to reinforce his message, where he wanted to prepare the people for the coming of the king. But in contrast, and it also later on was kind of held against Jesus, he, the Lord Jesus, he, he moved among the people, and he did not hesitate to to eat and drink and to celebrate various occasions. It's interesting how the form for marriage even mentions that by coming to this wedding, the Lord Jesus Christ honored marriage, continues to show that is an important relationship. But what really should have our attention, though, is that Jesus performed his first sign, his first miracle at a wedding, of all things, at a wedding going to be many other occasions many other miracles no john says at a wedding now as we think about this in light of scripture we recognize of course that marriage in the scriptures is held up as an image of the relationship in the old testament really of god and his people but also in the new testament of christ and his church now don't know whether the disciples would have caught all this immediately but but we who have the whole scriptures can't, can't help but think of that. You know, we think of what the Apostle Paul writes in Ephesians 5, how the marriage bond of a husband and a wife is a profound mystery, he says, referring to Christ and the church. And we notice that marriage image also used in Revelation 19, verse 6 through 9, where the end of the age is described in terms of, of the marriage feast of the Lamb. And the bride, some of the parables the Lord Jesus told were also about a marriage feast, the bridegroom coming and the people being ready for that, being invited to that. So, also as we think about that whole picture there in Revelation 19 that we read together, that those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb, they are blessed. But now what should strike us is that, that on this first sign, this first miracle, then as we have here that kind of wedding scenario makes us think of the eternal life that is to come and also how that life with the Lord is pictured in terms of love, unity, and joy, kind of prompted into that direction also by the human marriage relationship. So the Lord Jesus Christ begins to reveal his glory that he is the Christ, the Son of God, in such a joyful setting, a setting that Portrays for us that the age, that the joy of the age to come. You should always think of that. You know that salvation is a gift. The relationship is a joyful relationship. The life that is waiting for us is pictured as a marriage celebration. So most fitting indeed that the Lord Jesus begins to reveal Himself as the Messiah who, came, who comes to bring in the age of joy at a joyful event. Now all this, however sets the stage for his sign, which really drives home this message. And so we come to our second point. Now we turn our attention to all the goings, around, goings on around the actual sign, the miracle. We, we touched on Mary's role already. There's always a little, a few words in that particular passage that might make us a bit uncomfortable when the Lord Jesus says, Well, woman... What does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. You know, we we hear words like that, and and that doesn't fit with our modern sensitivities, because it sounds a bit derogatory and rude. If a husband spoke that way to his wife, or he speaks to another woman, that will not be appreciated. Woman? Okay, this is not a good scenario. But we should be careful not to read how words are used in our age back into the time when our Lord Jesus Christ spoke these words. We can see in the context of the New Testament revelation that there was even a degree of affection because it's interesting the way the same kind of phraseology is used when the Lord Jesus Christ is hanging on the cross. And then you recall that situation where he saw his mother standing there with John the Apostle and then he says, woman behold your son. There, even on the cross, Our Savior, as the oldest in the family, you could say, was thinking about his responsibility towards his mother and looking afterward that someone would look after her. He gave John that responsibility. So we might think of it negatively. Don't do that in terms of how it was used also in those those days. But what we can see is that by using this particular expression, rather than saying mother, no, saying woman, he also at the same time begins to show that there is a degree of distance that has to be recognized by his mother. Because in the end, she has to also learn to see him not as just a son, but she has to learn to see him as her savior. That's interesting, you know, that he has to, that Mary has to learn that. At other times too in his ministry, he had to kind of take distance from his earthly family and say, well, those who believe in me, those are my mother, my brothers and my sisters. So Mary could not lay a claim on him as a mother. He was beginning to function as the Savior, as the mediator. At the same time, you have to admit that when you read that interaction there, you do wonder, now why did Mary say this to Jesus? Was she used to it in her family when it came to dinner time? And she was a bit low on on oatmeal for dessert. She said to Jesus, can you make some more oatmeal or get some more grain or something like that? You know, you kind of wonder, well, why did she even say this? Well, we don't know. It just that she laid this before Jesus, and also she expected him to do something about it, or have the power to do something about it. And yet, even though our Lord had to teach his mother that she had to learn to relate to him as a believer, and not as a mother, he did act. So on the one hand, he says, my hour has not yet come, and yet he begins to, to act publicly, as he tells the servants to fill those six jars used for purification rites with water. So he, it's like the moment was there, not when he asked, but pretty soon it began to happen. It's interesting also often when he speaks about his hour having come, he is talking about when he has to go be arrested and crucified and put to death. But here he does begin to reveal himself as the Messiah. But the hour had come for him to begin to reveal his glory, even though his hour... Of making payment for the sins had not yet arrived. Now, as we read that description there, you know, we, in our translation we still read the words about gallons. Of course, our young people they understand better about liters. The older generation still thinks gallons sometimes, but not the younger ones. But to put that into liters, you know, to kind of also put a perspective on it, so the Lord Jesus said, fill up those six jars, and altogether they would have made about 500 to 700 liters of water. And just to put that into perspective, you know, you have these little water coolers that people have in the home or in the business, and you get those big 18-liter jugs you pop into that. Well, you need about 35 of those to make that equivalent. And then when the Lord Jesus turns that into wine, again, to keep those figures in mind, it would be about 55 cases of wine with 12 bottles each. That's a lot of water, a lot of wine in the end. At the same time, we also learned that this was excellent wine, made a point of it excellent the best had been saved for last now of course that might all seem very curious to us why do such a miracle just to turn water into wine but also in those setting the setting of the uh, what happened over there the people of israel also the disciples who were aware of this would have understood the symbolism if they were truly steeped in the teachings of the old testament because There are several passages in the prophets that speak of the Lord restoring his people after a time of oppression. And then, as part of that picture of restoration, there is always talk of an abundance of excellent wine. You know, we read that also in Isaiah 25, verse 6. For example, we read there On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well aged wine. Of rich food, full of marrow, of aged wine, well refined. You know that—that that is just a picture. We think even of a wedding, wedding banquet. Again, there's lots of good food, lots of wine for the festive occasion. Not only just wine; it is well-aged wine. It is good wine, as you could notice in that whole chapter. Really, a portrayal of of restoration. Even talks about that. Death will be no more. The Lord will wipe away all tears. There will just be a joyful restoration also when, at the same time, just before that, Isaiah would have been prophesying about judgment and condemnation because of the people's unfaithfulness. But restoration pictured in terms of a festive meal. Similar words in Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah, of course, was a prophet who lived probably about, if you think of Isaiah 740 to about 700, around that time period of B.C., Jeremiah lived around the time of the exile, so we're more than a century, about a century later. So, as Jeremiah also had to prophesy about the exile and even experienced the exile, he also talks about restoration, Jeremiah 31, verse 12, it says, "...they shall come and sing aloud on the height of Zion, and they shall be radiant over the goodness of the Lord, over the grain, the wine, and the oil." And over the young of the flock and the herd, their life shall be like a watered garden, and they shall languish no more. You see, that same kind of picture of restoration of an abundance of the good things of this earth, food and wine, celebrating the restoration. That same chapter, you might recall, Jeremiah 31 also speaks about the new covenant, where God will write the law that was written in the Old Testament on tablets of stone. He will write it on the tablets of people's hearts. Now, one more reference, end of Amos. Amos also had many prophecies of judgment, but he, his book concludes in this way. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. The mountain shall drip sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people, Israel. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine. You see, that that picture here of an abundance of wine is part of the picture of God restoring his people. That the day of salvation has come, you could say. And that sense of of the abundance of wine, you know, we have to think, well, that means that only going to lead to drunkenness. No, we shouldn't picture that necessarily. It's a time of celebration of joy, even as the the 12 spies went into the land to spy it out. Remember how they came back with a cluster of grapes so heavy, they had to have two men with a stick on their shoulders in between to carry that one cluster of grapes to show the abundance of the good life that was lying before them in the promised land. Although the people didn't believe it, but that picture there, again, Grapes makes you think of wine, makes you think of the blessings of the Lord, the blessed age. Now we should also note how the master of ceremonies com- commented on the excellence of the wine, that it was better than what had been served first. It was the custom to serve the good stuff first, and when people's senses are a bit dull, they no longer taste whether the wine that they are drinking is good or not, well, here it. It's the reverse. The best had been saved for last. But it also makes us think of the comparison of the old, the Sinai covenant, and the new covenant that was being brought in Christ's blood. Because in that respect, you know, what Israel had received in the Old Testament was beautiful, was rich. Think of Psalm 145, no 147. No other nation had been blessed by having God's revelation like that. So there were many great things. But the great things of the Old Testament all of a sudden become inferior when you think of what God is giving in the New Testament. So, it was great, but it was all preliminary. And by the time you come to the new age, the age of our Lord Jesus Christ, the old can be put away with. It looks like the Lord God has saved the best for last, even in terms of what is waiting for us in the life that is to come. It comes out also in the way that the Lord Jesus, you could say took those jars used, used for the rites of purification. He turned those water jars, which had to be part of those ceremonial laws, and the Pharisees had gone way overboard with that, making people wash everything. Every time they touched anything, washing their dishes, it just got out of hand. The Lord Jesus Christ, you could say, indicates, that that age is done. You no longer need those jars, because now here we are in the New Age, and those water jars become wine jars. They become jars that hold the festive drink of the New Covenant of the age to come. And when we think of the occasion and the sign, we can see how by turning the water into wine at the wedding, Jesus begins to reveal his glory as the Christ, as the Messiah. And him, that age, is there. Because here was an indication of of the restoration promised in the prophets. And by his power to turn water into wine, he also showed some of that power that John wrote about in the opening verses of chapter 1 when he said the word was with God and the word was God, all things were made through him. He has that power, power of the elements of creation to turn them into his, his instruments like he would later on have just a few pieces of bread and a few fish and he could make that feed a tremendously large crowd. But it should be clear, in the person of Jesus, the Messianic age had arrived. Or, as the other Gospels will speak about it, the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven was here. And to be sure, it was only at the beginning stages. In that respect, you know, we are still waiting for that fullness of the marriage feast of the Lamb. But this passage makes clear that it has begun to come in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that takes us to our last point, the fitting response to this revelation. Now at the end of our text, we read how the disciples believed in him. Because it comes out here that this sign was done especially for the sake of the disciples. Keep in mind, we said earlier, they only had been following the Lord Jesus for about a week by this point. They had not yet seen any Beyond, you could say, well, that Jesus knew about Nathanael and his character where he was sitting. But they really hadn't seen anything yet. They hadn't yet heard him preach. John hasn't told us about that. So, in that sense, here is their first personal encounter, the first evidence to them as disciples. This is the Christ. This is the one you have been waiting for. You have not been wrong in beginning to follow him. Now, of course, the disciples wouldn't have been the only ones who knew what happened, the servants who filled the jars and then brought a sample to the Master of Ceremonies would have known. We might assume that that Mary also learned about this. But, but we know from the reaction of the Master of Ceremonies, he didn't say, well, now I believe in Jesus. He didn't know where it came from. He simply thought this was a rather classy move on the part of the, of the groom. And there's no indication that the other guests ultimately knew what happened. They just had a chance to enjoy some more good wine. Now, we can assume of course many things as to who knew what and how many people knew, but John's concern is to tell us that the first disciples knew and they believed. It was important for them because he said earlier too, disciples were called to be eye and ear witnesses of our Lord's ministry. Here, they received that first authentication of Jesus as the Messiah. It was always important. You think even of when Moses went to the people of Israel. He said to the Lord, well, how can I show to them? How will they know that I have been sent by you? And the Lord gave them the two signs with that. He could throw his staff down, become a snake, or he could stick his hand in his coat and come out leprous and reverse that again. Well, that was the way to authenticate. He was sent by God. Here, Jesus begins to authenticate himself as truly being the Messiah. The very nature of his sign shows the messianic age has come in him. Now, as it gave the disciples the first taste of Jesus as the Messiah and the nature of the salvation he is bringing, a joyful character, it really does the same for us. It also shows us that the purpose ...of his coming is to restore God's people. That's all. Redemption is about restoration. To bring in a blessed age, in a way, to prepare us. And also, as we think now again of that seven, in the scriptures, even that whole idea of Sabbath... ...is driven forward in Hebrews chapter 4, for example, to the age to come. The age of rest, the age of blessedness, when we will be in the eternal rest. A time of peace a time of prosperity, a time of festivity, a time of joy. The character of salvation is one of joy. And the fitting response is therefore the response of faith in Jesus, that he is the one who has come to restore us in our relationship with God. And to put it again in John's own words, Jesus did this, that we might believe in him, and by believing we might have life in his name. And so let us behold our Savior, portrayed in this sign, and behold the salvation portrayed for us before our eyes. Believe in him, so that you may enjoy the fullness of life, portrayed in the abundance of wine at the marriage in Cana. May you enjoy that at the marriage of the Lamb. Amen. Amen.